0: Would you please rise for the reading of Scripture, which comes to us today from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thus the reading of the word. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would open our hearts to hear the message that you have prepared Through your servant Nate, we pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts and apply his message to the areas of our lives that are needful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Um, Before I begin, I just wanted to say that it is actually so good to be here. Been away for a few weeks doing RUF stuff. Um, and it feels like I'm back at my church, a church that I, I recognize the faces, you are my people, and it is so good for me to be here, um, and I really enjoy being able to, to worship with you. And it was just really good for me this morning to see other people up here. Uh, it is a sign, and, and I hope so deeply that things can go back to normal, and it is good to worship with you. It is good to see other people on stage and for us to worship together as the body of Christ. Um with that let's begin. Um so for those of you those of you who know me you know uh, I've talked about this before that I was a missionary in China when I was 21 I moved there and I was asked to be a youth pastor. They said, you know, there's like around 200 kids from, you know, 40 different countries and and we're wondering if you could come and pastor and evangelize to these groups of people and to their families. And I remember the first day when I showed up uh, for my job, I went to the youth group, it was actually just a big apartment. Um, And I walked up and I was nervous as I entered uh, and I was ready for the whole group of students to mob me, all the middle schoolers, all the high schoolers. Uh, But when I actually walked in, there was just, you know, crickets, silence few people looked, and then they went right back to their conversation, and I was, you know, I had that awkward pit in my stomach of like, oh, I've been rejected before I've even said a word, uh, which is not great feeling. Uh, and so I decided to say hi to the person next to me and, uh, you know, asked him his name and, and asked him what he, you know, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the new youth pastor to come. Uh, and I said, oh, and he said, what's your name? And I said, I'm Nate. Uh, and then he asked me what grade I was in, uh, and I was 21 at the time. So apparently I was, I was young enough to look like a senior in high school, uh, and apparently I didn't look like a youth pastor. The previous one who had left two years before was six foot three from Tennessee. Uh, he was 33 years old. He was loud and energetic. He did things at youth group like, you know, do tug-of-war with a fish and other weird types of activities um, that I never did, um, but apparently I didn't fit the type. And it was only once I was introduced at the, at the beginning of the, the service that I was actually then subsequently mobbed uh, by the middle schoolers especially. But the thing is, is because of their expectations, because of the, or their lack of knowledge of what to expect and who I was, they missed me. They, I walked in and they had no idea that I was their new pastor. Now, what's fascinating about the Gospels is how similar they are. But what's equally fascinating and maybe even more fascinating to me is how they're different. It's important that they're the same, but in seeing their differences, we see what each author, each eyewitness wanted to emphasize. In the story of our text today, which is the triumphal entry, uh, each gospel author emphasizes something different. When it comes to the triumphal entry. Matthew emphasizes how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that this entry is a cosmic entry of what Jesus has come to do. Luke emphasizes the power and the self-evident nature of what Jesus is doing. Um, so, Luke's saying so much so that this is so epic that if the people didn't cry out, the stones would. John emphasizes that Jesus' triumphal entry was epic, but it was only much later, after his death, resurrection, and glorification, that the disciples really understood what was going on. Mark, our gospel, uh, which if you remember is sort of a theme throughout the gospel, is the lowliness, the hiddenness, the humbleness of Jesus. This is what Mark emphasizes. The lowliness and the hiddenness of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. It's cosmically epic, but Peter remembers that it's the nobodies that come to greet their king, that Jesus, the conquering king who who has finally arrived to kill sin, to destroy death for his people, is lowly, he's humble, and he's hidden from his full majesty and power to save. As I expected to be mobbed as the new pastor, and as I would expect if the king of France showed up in Arlington today, the most powerful people in our country would be here to meet him, So we should expect that as the savior of mankind (laughs) enters into the holy city that he would be celebrated and praised by the world and yet it's just a few. Our story is about a different kind of king, a humble king, a powerful servant king who makes a grand entrance into his city to do the work of a king and the question we are all meant to wonder is who will see him and even more importantly who will follow the man riding in on a donkey. (laughs) With that question in mind, we will turn to our text today to study it, and we will ask three things. What were the people of God expecting? What should they have been expecting? The second question we'll ask is, what does Jesus do? And the third question we'll ask is, what should be our response? So what were the people of God expecting? What does Jesus do in the triumphal entry? And what should be our response? So what were the people expecting? Well, uh, so this may surprise you, but many people have been angry in me at my life, at some point in my life. Uh, one of the particular reasons people get angry with me is they say, hey, Nate, have you read Harry Potter? Uh, and I say, yeah, uh, of course. I've read, you know, book four, six, and seven. And they look at me like, wait, 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 wait. You, you, you know that there's a book one, two, and three. wait, wh- you didn't read one through three, and then you skip five? like just all together and read six and seven? Like, why would you do that? How can you understand the full story if you didn't read the first beginning books? And I was like, I had to get AR points in high school. I'm sorry. Uh, they were big books. It was a lot of points at one time, and that's just what I did. But I understand their anger, right? Because I get angry. But I'm a movie guy. Uh, I get angry at people when, when they also skip the, you know, the important parts of the story. So for instance, I remember I watched the second Matrix movie at my house. I had a friend come over, and I said, you know, let's watch The Matrix. And he's like, okay. And we get done with the movie, and, and I was like, well, you know, that movie wasn't as good as the first one. And he said, you know, honestly, I didn't understand any of that. I had no idea. What was. Why were people plugging in a computer to their brains? Uh, and I was like, you didn't see the first one, did you? And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, well, of course you didn't get it. Of course you had no idea. There's a whole world that was set up to help you make sense of what's going on. Or, for instance, I went to watch Lord of the Rings, the third, The Return of the King, in movie theaters with a bunch of my friends. And at one point in the movie, a friend leans over to me and he's like, Can you remind me who, you know, Gandalf is, the guy in the white, and what's this thing about the ring? Um, I'm I'm a little bit hazy. And, And I said, are you serious? Have you seen, like, did you see the first one? And he's like, no, I'd never seen any of these. And I was like, you have to know what comes first to have any idea of what's going on in this story. There is so much here that only makes sense because of what has come before. And the beauty of the story, the beauty of the friendship between Legolas and Gimli and elves and and, uh, dwarves, all of that makes sense. The beauty of the story makes sense because of what has gone before. Now, the thing about the triumphal entry that is important for us to know is that it is packed full of Old Testament allusions and expectations. The Gospels as themselves are full of Old Testament quotations and references, allusions, and Jesus himself says, if you knew the Old Testament, you would know me, because it is the Old Testament, the Word of God, that has prepared the way for me. It has witnessed to me. It has prophesied about me. And because the Jewish people have the Bible, we who read the New Testament are shocked that they miss him. Because so much of his life and what he has done was prepared for by the Old Testament. I remember when I became a new, Christ, or new Christian, I told my pastor, all right, I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation. I'm going to go read Genesis. And he was like, don't go read the Old Testament until you've read the New Testament a few times. Because you, like, you won't understand it. And so I did. But the thing is, is like that didn't help me understand the Old Testament. I was still confused. And the thing that I realized is most Christians and pastors I knew also really didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. But the truth is, uh, and they would say things, sorry, they would say things like the Old Testament's bloody. It's confusing. it's, It's full of murder and prophecies and adultery. But the New Testament, that's nice. It's full of grace. It's full of forgiveness. The Sermon on the Mount is there, which is beautiful. And so most people, what we do is we take the New Testament, the last you know, three-fourths of our Bible, and we judge the Old Testament with the New Testament. But here's the thing. The New Testament understands itself as the continuation of the one story of the redemption of God's people throughout all time. It is a story that begins, the story of redemption begins almost immediately after the fall in Genesis 3. And the majority of the New Testament only makes sense because of what has come before. The triumphal entry is pregnant with Old Testament expectations and illusions. So to understand the New Testament like fully, we must know and even love the Old We must not start at the end of the story and expect to fully understand all the gifts and gold and beauty and splendor of the one story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration that is the story of the Bible, which is one story. And if we don't know the Old Testament, we are in danger of becoming just like the people in the the time of the New Testament who missed Jesus even though they had come in contact with him. We cannot be those people. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You can become a Christian and only know the New Testament. You could read one book of the New Testament and become a Christian, but you could also read Exodus or Habakkuk, which have led people to faith throughout centuries. It's important to know the whole word and counsel of God. So how do these expectations then that are running, what are the expectations of the Old Testament that are actually running underneath and undergirding the story of the triumphal entry? Well, first is this. The first thing that we have to know is about God's covenant that he made with David. God's covenant that he made with King David is where he promised to Israel a king who was to come as the anointed king of Israel, the Messiah. That is what the anointed one is. It is the one tasked by God, chosen by God to be the Savior, Messiah, the anointed one of his people. This is what Israel was longing for and praying for at the time that Jesus had come. This king was prophesied that he would be the one who would bring the kingdom of God with him to earth. He would bring God's rule and his reign to earth. Through him, God's enemies would be conquered. His people would be rescued. His justice administered. The hearts of the people would be made new. The poor would be cared for. The widows and orphans would be brought into the family of God. Death would be defeated. The curse of God would be reversed wherever sin touched. Wherever the curse was found, it would be reversed. The earth would bless once again without its thistles and thorns. And it longed for this redemption. And this kingdom, it says, would have no end forever and ever. This king who would come would be David's greater son, royal and pure, but also connected to God in a special way. Genesis 49 says that this king would come from the line of Judah and that he would draw the nations into worship of God. Malachi 3.1 says that this king would come suddenly into his temple and bring judgment and righteousness and purify the people of God and lead them into the true and right worship of their king. Zechariah 9.9 promises that when this king comes, the long-awaited savior of the people of God, that he would come riding into his holy city on a donkey. Humble and powerful, a servant of the people, a shepherd, and a king. And in recognition of this, you, the Old Testament is full of stories in recognition of kings and royalty, where the people of God would bow to their king, throw their cloaks on the road to show their undying obedience and submission to the king. And in Jewish culture, both coins and synagogues were de- decorated with branches, palm branches, which were a sign that their king, their ruler, was victorious, and as they had those things, they said, his victory is our victory. We are in benefit of the victories of the king, and so as the people went, or as the king went, so went the people. Now, what does this mean? Well, these are just a few of the stories, a drop in the bucket of the Old Testament expectations that were placed upon the Messiah, of who he would be, of what he would do, and these stories undergird and shape our expectation as Jesus triumphantly enters his holy city, Jerusalem. These stories are meant to shape us. These stories are meant to increase our faith. The stories of the Old Testament, the promises, the prophecies, the dreams, the songs, the commands, all of these stories are our stories. We are the people of God And these stories are our inheritance. They are our ancestors. These are the stories of our God in real time and space. And these stories are meant to become our stories and shape us so that when the king comes, we do not miss him. They're shared and written down to encourage us and inform us and to increase our faith. The story of David's victory over Goliath, where David attained a victory through his God, and that victory went through and blessed the entire people causes us to look and long for another king who would gain an even greater victory as our representative, whose victory would become ours, though we also did not have to lift a finger. These stories I just shared to you about the Messiah are important for us to know because they teach us about our Savior, about our Messiah, about our king, and they are meant to make it so that when Jesus shows up on the scene, we don't miss him because if we miss him, how will we follow him? And will we follow him? So these are some of the Old Testament expectations that undergird this story. But, what does Jesus do? And more importantly, what does Jesus do in this story and what does that mean? What does it mean of what does the the story of the triumphal entry mean? Well, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his eyes on the holy city and he is heading towards it. Uh, The as he nears, he orders his disciples to, to go and grab a colt or a donkey. And Jesus does something here that shows that he's not just an ordinary king. He is the God king. He's the God man. He tells people exactly where to find the colt and exactly what to say. And weirdly enough, he's like, hey, the Lord needs this. And they're like, all right. And so that, all this story is meant to show that this is something that, that God does. Jesus is not an no ordinary human. Um, and all of it happens exactly as he says. As they come back with the donkey, they put their, the disciples put their cloaks on the colt, and Jesus rides to Jerusalem on top of that donkey. And as he rides into the city, people throw their cloaks before him. They cut down branches and palm branches from the trees around them, and they wave to him, and they shout, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David!' Hosanna in the highest. And presumably, a crowd who knew Jesus yelled and proclaimed these things as they followed him into the city of Jerusalem, and he made his, his stop in, his, in the temple of the Lord. What Jesus begins here in commanding his disciples to find a cult and sees through as he enters into his temple is the great declaration of God's finally coming to his kingdom. It is the great Davidic covenant promise of a Messiah who would come that is fulfilled in Zechariah nine that says, Your king is coming to you. In fact, he's here. He has come. The one to rule the nations and gather all peoples to himself has arrived. The one with the power to bring the kingdom and to fight back and push back against sin and to rescue people and to lead the world into the worship of the one true God is here. Hosanna, they cry out, which means save us, please. They cry this out to Jesus because he's the king and the king can save them. The king is the one who can rescue them. And they cry out to Jesus, please save us. He defeats our enemies. He sets his people free to worship the Lord without hindrance and out, without obstruction. Blessed is he is far more than just happiness, which is what most people say when they say, what does blessed mean? It means happy. No, it means covenant blessings. Blessedness is covenant language, which talks about the fullness and the wholeness of being in relationship with God. There's peace and prosperity. There's life and flourishing, and it's the king, they believe, who can bring this. It is the king who brings blessings, and it is the king who distributes those blessings to his people, and they shout praises. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the crowd here shouts and recognizes Jesus Christ as their king. Jesus the Messiah has announced his arrival, not only as coming in the name of the Lord, but as the Lord himself come to save his people. He has come to bring the kingdom of God. Now, I remember a few months ago, over the summer actually, watching the TV show The Crown, uh, which is sort of like a dramatic semi-historical retelling of Queen Elizabeth's life. And I remember the episode of her coronation. Uh, they actually showed real clips from when it had happened. Um, and as she was preparing to be, you know, for her coronation as becoming queen, uh, they show lots of scenes of her being decorated with the world's finest jewels, a crown that is custom fit around to, to custom fit around her head. She has the most beautiful and talented people that come and give her, you know, wonderful dresses and uh, perfect hair. Um, And all the best and most important people from out the world come to pay and celebrate their new queen, the Queen of England. And as she rode to Westminster Abbey to become queen, she was put in the fanciest of cars. And the people throughout all of England came and gathered on the streets and they waved flags to her and they celebrated her as she drove and she waved to her people and they cheered for her and they wept for her and everyone bowed to her, and the world celebrated the new queen. It really was an epic world event. But here's the thing. Jesus is our king, and he's not just our king. He's the king of the universe. And yet our king, who is the king of kings, was born in a manger, in a cave, in a shed, in obscurity, raised in obscurity. We know so little about his early life, His whole life, he was humble. He was hidden, not boasting. And in his ministry, he he associated with Gentiles and the lowly and the wicked and the poor. Those were his people. Mark's emphasis in our story is the lowliness and the humility in the coming of our shepherd king. We ask the question, where are the multitudes? Where were the great men? Where were the Caesars and the kings and the princes? Where are the generals and the men of power and the men of war? Where are the rich and the famous? You see, the disciples understood him to be the Messiah, but they thought he has come to save us from the Romans. it, when it was only after his resurrection that they really began to understand just how powerful he actually was, how great his salvation would be. Luke says this, this scene, this triumphal entry is so epic and powerful that if the people had not come to praise him, the stones and the rocks creation would have had to cry out. If only the world had known who this was, would they have followed the man on a donkey? You see, what makes this triumphant entry so triumphant is not the response of the people, but who was coming. What makes it triumphant is that the king of the universe was riding in. The king of the people of God had finally come. That's what this story is about. It's Jesus' declaration to the world, which is the first time in Mark that he's not saying, hide, don't tell people who I am, but he is openly saying, I am the king, I am the Messiah. He instigates this whole plan. David's greater son, who has the power to bring the kingdom of God, is here, and he is far greater than any man, any king, any movement, anything. That's what this story means. Our king is has come. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, has come. So we've seen the expectations for the Messiah, and we've also seen that Jesus fulfilled those expectations, declaring to the world who he is. And let me ask you this, how is it that we might respond? Well, from the text, I'm going to point out three things that I feel show how we might respond And the first is this. John Calvin, in his commentary on Mark 11, asked the question, who are these people that come out and greet Jesus and go with him to the temple? He says, it's the villagers. It's the villagers where he starts his journey. They're the ones who are with Jesus. In other words, he says, it's the nobodies. It's the poor. It's the despised multitude. It's the needy. These are the people who have marked Jesus' ministry since the beginning. And one might think that, man, this king must be a failure because where are the rich? Where are the powerful? Where are the princes? They're not there. But John Calvin says, no, no, no. He is not building that type of kingdom. He has not come to build that type of kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom consisting of the beautiful and the powerful with fading riches and earthly glory. It's a divine kingdom filled with those who are broken the lowly, the needy. It is filled with the people who can admit they need a Savior. Jesus's kingdom is for the needy and for the lowly. Just like the first beatitude says, Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. God requires a heart from us full of humility that recognizes our utter dependence upon him that he is the one who fulfills all needs, and whoever belongs to the Lord must have a heart that recognizes God is God, that they are his, and everything we have from our first cry to final breath comes from us as a gift from the Father. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses is a prayer of somebody who is desperate and needy and recognizes that it is only of the Lord that they have any good things, which is exactly what the scriptures teach. This text reminds us of our humility before the king. It pl- is this, Jesus's kingdom is, will be full of the lowly and the needy, and those who want to follow their king in dependence on him must have a heart like this. The second thing we see is Jesus enters in his temple in verse 11. He enters as the Lord of Malachi 3, who suddenly comes to his temple. Jesus here is not a pilgrim, But the sovereign Lord and the King, who's come to do His job, which is to observe the worship and the religious life of His people, and to make sure that they are fulfilling their calling and purpose, and not only worshiping God themselves, but leading the nations into the worship of God as well. So Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly as the King to do the King's work. In a few verses, I'm thinking Ryan will probably speak on this in the next few weeks. He has come to cleanse His temple and to lead the people into the right worship of God. That's why he's looking around. This is a great reminder for us that the purity of our worship matters. The purity of our worship matters. There are many things that can taint and darken our worship. There are many things that can pollute our worship. Our hearts, John Calvin says, are endless factories of idols. And God will not be worshipped second, and not only will he not be worshipped second, he will share his worship with none. Jesus, in his most angry moment in the New Testament and at his most vicious, is one who is a faithful king that drives into the, comes into the temple and drives out the money changers and pushes out all the people that would ever pollute God's worship. The purity of our worship matters. What we do, what we have in this building, what we have in our homes, what we say when we come up here, even how we decorate this church matters. The the purity of our worship matters because God will not be worshiped second, nor does he share his worship with anyone. And Jesus, the faithful king, drives out anything that would be a hindrance to the pure and perfect worship, which is what we as in the PCA, our members, we take vows to that, that we promise to protect the purity of this church. The third thing we see is that as Jesus journeys from the village to Jerusalem's temple, the people follow him, pursuing, or pursuing him, praising him, shouting prayers to him from the Psalms, and throwing down their cloaks and waving palm branches to their king. It's here we see how the multitudes, the villagers, respond to Jesus. Now what's fascinating about throwing down their cloaks is that biblically, the, way, the reason they did this in the Old Testament was a sign of submission to their king. It was a sign of submission. You see, the cloak uh, in the Old Testament is actually protected by Old Testament law. Your cloak was protected by Old Testament law that you know, the leaders and the powerful, and if you broke a crime, they could take a lot of things from you, but God would not let your cloak be taken from you because that was your dignity. If you took your cloak, then you would absolutely have nothing. But as image bearers, he protected our dignity. But what's fascinating about these story, this story is as we find the people throwing down their cloaks willingly. Their king comes, and they throw down their cloaks before him, and it is a sign and it is a pledge of complete and utter submission to all the commands and all the words and all of the decrees of the king. And this is what is required to be a follower of Jesus and to call him Lord, that we submit in all things and we lay down our lives before the king. But they also wave palm branches, Which was a sign of victory and also the connection of the people to it. When the king rose in, came in victorious, the people raised and waved palm branches to say, It is the king who is victorious. It is he who saves, not me. It is he who brings blessing, not me. It is him who brings the kingdom with him, not me. And he is victorious, not me. But yet, as the people, we believe. And we wave our palm branches in connection with this king because we believe that the victories of the Messiah are also ours. What the king accomplishes is also ours. The battles he wins, we win. The blessings he receives, we receive. And we, wave, we raise our palm branches and we wave them to our king to say, not only is he the victorious one, but we wave with him to say, we also are victorious because the king shares his blessings with us. Now, what's fascinating about this whole story is, again, the Gospel of John. I thought a lot about the Gospel of John's version of this because he says this about the triumphal entry in verse 16 of chapter 12. He says, his disciples did not understand this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written down about Jesus, meaning Old Testament, but also what had been done to him, meaning what they actually went through. You see, what they're saying here is that it was only later when Jesus had risen from the grave that this whole situation, this triumphal entry, actually began to make sense. The disciples thought that Jesus was a different kind of Savior, that he, was, that he had come to defeat a different kind of enemy, the Romans, and that he was coming to claim and that he would be a different kind of Savior. They did not know that Jesus had come as a humble servant king. That he, they did not know that he had become a king who would be weak, who would be despised, rejected, and spit on, and tortured, and crucified by his own people. They did not understand that their king had come to be abandoned by the people he came to save. They did not know that Jesus would be crucified with nothing, not even a cloak, because they had ripped it from him. They didn't know that Jesus was coming to be crushed for our sin and our iniquities, that he would become and treated as impure, because of the worship of us, because we put other gods before him and he would be punished. They didn't understand that Jesus had come to bring justice, but by bringing justice and saving us, he took the hammer blow himself so that we might be saved. They didn't understand that by Jesus being in perfect submission to the Father, that this would mean that he would be crushed by the Lord himself, the wrath of our sin upon him. He would become a curse, for it says, "'Cursed is anyone.'" who is hanged upon a tree. But the death of Jesus was not the end for him, and the grave could not hold him. Being glorified, Jesus has taken his seat on the throne next to the right hand of God as David's greater son, where he rules the cosmos even now. Jesus the king is reigning and ruling over this entire universe, and he declared it who he was on Palm Sunday. He rules the cosmos, building and advancing his church, advancing his kingdom that will have no end. But it was only once they saw the risen Savior, the risen Messiah, that the disciples saw what it truly meant to be the Messiah. For he had defeated the unconquerable enemies of the people of God, sin, death, and even the devil. And he had victory over them. And he has given that victory to us. He has reclaimed his people by being forsaken and he has rescued us from our enemies by destroying them once and for all. He became poor so that we might become rich. We are blessed because of what Jesus has given us. By his perfect submission, he has freed us from our sins, turning us from slaves to sin to those who truly can obey God from the heart. It's because of Jesus that we now lay down our lives and we say, Lord Jesus, we need you. I have nothing to give, simply to the cross I cling. It's because of Jesus that we launch up endless praise and pure worship and glory and honor to our God. Hosanna in the highest is what we proclaim to our King. And it's because of Him that we follow the man who came into the city riding on a donkey. Because we see in Jesus the victory worthy of a King of the universe, and we rest fully in His victory and His work, though we did not lift a finger to earn it. We, who will follow the lowly king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? It's the people of God. The people of God see their king and they follow him no matter what. He was declared with a triumphant entry and now we who follow him lay down our lives daily, picking up our cross and following our cosmic king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have come. Lord, you promised you would come, and you promised you would make all things new. And Lord, you have made us a new creation. You have made us people who follow you and love you, and we praise you for that power. We praise you for your grace, and we ask, Lord, that we would faithfully serve you, that we would lay down our lives, that we would lay down our cloaks, that we would pick up our own branches, our own cross, die to ourselves daily, and follow the King, because by following him, Lord, you give us life, and you are worthy of all praise. Salvation is of the Lord. Praise you, Lord, that you are a great and godly and mighty, wonderful King. Let us rest at the feet of our Savior and obey with joy. Pray this in your name. Amen.